Tune in, turn on, get down. Love is the message. Hello, I'm Jeremy Gilbert, and this is the first episode of Love is the Message. This is a podcast in which I'll be joined by my friend Tim Lawrence. Hello. And we'll be looking at the history of music, cultural change, political change, mainly since the beginning of the 1970s, but maybe before that, and certainly in all the decades after that. Uh, Tim and I are a pair of academics, DJs, party promoters, We've been writing and thinking and teaching about these issues since the 1990s. Tim is probably the leading authority on the history of New York dance music culture and all the things that have been impacted by it. And we've been living the life of dancers, DJs and promoters, as well as theorising about it in an academic and non-academic context for many years. So I think you should introduce yourself. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, so, uh, well, my name is Tim, and um, I guess I'm best known for being the author of, of three books, Love Saves Today, History of American Dance Music Culture, 1970 to 1979. It was supposed to be a history of house music beginning in the mid-1980s, but then I was introduced to David Mancuso, and a uh, detailed, um, deep, and uh, in many ways loving book was kind of focused on the contribution of David Mancuso and the loft to the rise of DJ and party culture and disco during the 1970s. Uh, I've written two more books, a biography of what I sometimes call an anti-biography, biography of Arthur Russell called Hold On To Your Dreams. And the last book was a detailed historical focus on New York City, uh, 1980 to 83, this period of this kind of remarkable cultural renaissance. We should say who David Mancuso is, who you've mentioned. David Mancuso was the kind of key founding figure of the dance party underground in New York at the start of the 70s and, and continually really for several decades. So we'll, we'll come back to that. It was the first book, of course, that uh, led David Mancuso to approach me and uh, Colleen uh, Murphy, who was also living in London, uh, had been involved for, uh, in the New York City loft to start parties in London. You had already suggested to me that we do the, the same thing. And so we sort of started this adventure together back in June 2003 of putting on these parties in, in London uh, with David Mancuso. And then we teamed up uh, a little bit later to also start this other party, all our friends. Of course, we've also been employed at University of East London since 1999 and got to know each other because I'd written, or was writing Love Saves a Day, and you'd written Discographies, one of the first and most important books about dance music and rave culture. Why don't you tell me a bit more about yourself, Jeremy? So about me, well, my name is Jeremy Gilbert. I'm an academic. I'm a professor. Um, I work in the fields of cultural theory, uh, political analysis, uh, but also I've uh, done a lot of work on music and music culture. I also, as Tim says, I've also been DJing and kind of organising and promoting dance parties for sort of years and years now. So my kind of thinking about those these issues comes from all those different sources. I guess the, the, the shortest answer to the question who we are and what we're doing here is that we're university professors who run a sound system, isn't it? That's, which is pretty, there aren't many of those. I know a few who, who did run sound systems in their youth, but I don't know of any other pair of university professors who run a sound system. Yeah. We'll also talk about why, because it's a weird thing to do. It's not, well, I mean, we'll come back to this, I'm sure, but it's also, it's not what I thought 
yeah, we met each other in 1999. I, I, I was, I had not at all. I wouldn't have been at all surprised at that point that we would still be friends like 20 years later. But would I be surprised that I, at nearly 50 and you um, slightly older than that, would, we would be like running sound systems, like in, in the classic style of like driving around in vans till three in the morning, moving huge speakers around and staying up late DJing to frenzied crowds. I would have thought, I would have said, no, that's highly unlikely. That's highly unlikely outcome. The podcast is a more likely outcome, actually. <laughs> if I said, it said to me, we yeah. be doing a radio show about music, <laughs> culture, and history, and politics. And I'd say, yeah, that sounds very likely. I think there's, there's something, where, you know, somewhere in this lies some kind of evidence that, that this is a is is what's going on here. Is that there's there's a culture here that from the outside people often dismiss. Even if they're taking it seriously, they'll often sort of say, well, you know, at best it kind of is pleasurable. But I think what what we've experienced is that there's something about this ex- experience, you know, and it, it's about the dance floor, it's about sound systems, it's about interacting with other human beings, it's about creating a space for exploration. That this this culture is 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 offering us something which is extraordinarily enthralling emotionally and spiritually important this is the practice and it's it's complex and it's um and it's why you know you just a bit under 50 and me just a bit over 50 there's no clear slowing down yet and that's improbable and i guess we're we're going to try and explore and explain why so um we thought a bit I mean, I was going to say long and hard, but it was it didn't take us that long to come up with the name Love is the Message. Jeremy, what's what's your kind of recollections of how we decided to choose that name? Well, there's several reasons why we're calling the, the show Love is the Message. I mean, firstly, Love is the Message is the title of a track, a famous disco song, which we, we're going to talk about in more detail today. And it is absolutely the anthem of the loft party in New York City. I mean, it has been since the early 70s, and it still is to this day. I remember the first time I went to the loft in New York on a very, very snowy Valentine's Day, I guess sort of 15 years ago, coming out into the street after the party, and people had written love is the message in the snow, like on the street outside. This sense of it being a sort of slogan Mm. is really powerful. But then love is that why, I mean, the interesting question is like, well, why does this, you know, this slightly cheesy, sort of very uplifting, sort of soulful disco, proto-disco record, you know, why does that become, you know, the anthem of the loft? Well, because to some extent, the idea of love as a message, the idea of love as something which is important to celebrate, but which also has, is something that has to be communicated because it has a certain social or political potency, that is an idea which we think runs through a lot of different strands of music and history, certainly in the period that we're most interested in to begin with. And the loft, the loft party sort of represents a convergence of some of those themes, but it's already there. It's the, the idea of love. Love is the message. It's a sort of echo of the Beatles. All you need is love. It's a resonant with themes in reggae. It's resonant with themes that run through into rave culture in the 80s and 90s. What would you add about it? Yeah, I think there's important just to, I mean, I agree, obviously, of course, with everything you're saying. Uh, it's about, it's, we're obviously interested in this kind of, 
the idea of love as, you know, one of the fundamental kind of reference points for counterculture. I think it's counterculture that's going to, in a, in a way, uh, inform most of what we end up looking at in, in this podcast series. It's the idea of trying to establish wider, more popular, uh, more inclusive, egalitarian communities. And, and love is, is the idea, is the expression, the emotion, the force that kind of brings many of these things together. And David was was clearly heavily devoted to the counterculture movement and to uh, social transformation with love at the centre of that. Love is very important because, of course, you know, what we now look on as the first loft party uh, at the time, uh, the party wasn't known it was a loft and David wasn't clear that there were going to be more parties. But what we look on now as that first party uh, back in February 1970, David gave out invitations for that party and on the, those invitations wrote Love Saves the Day. So the centrality of love to the loft was kind of there from the very beginning. Um, of course, Love Saves the Day also referred to the drug of choice of that particular party, but also the, the early years of the loft in particular, uh, which was LSD. And people who've consumed LSD um, also generally connect into an experience and notion and understanding of the central power of, of universal love. And love is the message partly became uh, the anthem of the loft precisely because it was kind of re-articulating those ideas, those sensibilities, but also within the sound that was, as you've already sort of suggested, Jeremy, was kind of changing from something which was uh, had a, an R&B kind of feel and was kind of very rooted and present to something that also gave a, a, something that was kind of more romantic and perhaps kind of also offered a sense of transformation and escape and moving on to a different plane of experience. All, all of these things were captured in this record. It was, I mean, I guess it's not, in, it's significant that it was a Philadelphia international record. Uh, it was Philadelphia International that was the label that to some extent kind of embodied the shift from R&B, which actually kind of, of course remained influential uh, throughout the 1970s. But there was still this shift from R&B to um, this thing that we call disco. Okay, so one thing we're going to do on this show is each episode is we're going to talk about some specific pieces of music that seem to really be important to the moment we're discussing or to exemplify some of the themes we're discussing. We're both DJs. We're used to being being able to play uh, full vinyl records for hours at a time, but because of licensing laws, we're only ever going to be able to play be able to play a few seconds of given tracks but we think it's really important to actually have a listen to the sounds of music and think about the ways in which the, the the specific sounds the specific tunes is always telling us something about what they're trying to do to the listener what's happening at the time they're produced and with the people they're listening to so we'll be uh, as much as we can we'll be thinking about music music as music as well as just part of the background to broader social and cultural change and we're going to po we'll post playlists as well so that people can listen to the full tracks. So we've looked to talk briefly about some of the reasons why we uh, settled on the name Love is the Message for this podcast. I think we'd just be good if we sort of try and tease these out a little bit more, really just to kind of give everyone out there a chance to kind of, you know, just an opportunity to get a sense of what we're going to be doing in, in the next sort of six episodes, I think it is. The key themes that we're going to be introducing, because these are the themes that we feel we're going to be returning to time and time again so jeremy what's this kind of idea of counterculture which is kind of informs you know it's going to inform so much of what we're going to be talking about 
Okay, so counterculture is a term that emerges in the late 60s, around 67, 68. And the term is officially credited with being coined by Theodore Rozak in a book in 1968. And it's a term that I think had already been in circulation in, in some circles. And the idea of the counterculture is really the idea that the, these converging elements of the hippie culture, the psychedelic culture, which had been growing up over the past few decades, few years rather, uh, the new forms of political activism and political radicalism that are coming out of first civil rights, then black power and the anti-Vietnam war movement, and will eventually also include things like women's liberation, gay liberation, ecological politics. That all of these things ought to be understood as composite elements of a, co of a relatively coherent, although also very diverse, co yeah, a, a counterculture, a culture, which a whole culture, a whole way of life, really, and a whole way of thinking about the world, which sees itself as being in opposition to the mainstream culture of American liberal, American-led liberal capitalism and its sort of military industrial infrastructure. Now, that, that is the historic meaning of the term counterculture. There's then a much looser way you can interpret the term, and some writers have interpreted the term, to just designate, well, any sort of oppositional culture or radical culture or alternative culture. And oppositional, radical and alternative might not all mean the same thing either. I mean, some theorists would say they definitely don't mean the same thing. But the idea that music has some sort of association with cultural change, with historic change, is a really old idea. It's a, I never tire of telling students that it, it actually goes all the way back to Plato. I mean, Plato specifically says at one point, you know, changes in musical form are associated with changes in social and political relations and institutions. So the idea of counterculture in a quite broad sense, could encompass all kinds of things. It could encompass definitely things like punk, hip-hop at certain moments, reggae and its relationship to Rastafarianism. There's a whole interesting question that we'll spend lots of time, I'm sure, exploring as to whether rave, for example, constituted some form of a counterculture. And, of course, there's always critics of every, everything that claims to be countercultural always has critics who are seeing in it either a kind of gesture of impotent, sort of impotent anger in the case of things like punk or just a form of escapism in the form of, of things like the hippie culture. But at the moment when the term is coined in sort of 68, 69, and this is still the case by the early 70s, say in New York, when David Mancuso is starting the loft parties, there's a definite sense that one of the elements of counterculture, including all of this political and social radicalism, is a general embrace of an idea of an idea of love as a basic, an idea of a sort of universal love as a sort of basic ethic, a basic aesthetic, a basic way of, of relating to the world and relating to people. And it's interesting to talk about this in terms of counterculture because we decided the first, the very first track we would play and the first track we would talk about would be the Beatles' "All You Need Is Love," which is a song people will be familiar with, but we should hear it anyway.
I mean, in some ways, it sees itself as it's clearly a sort of proto-countercultural anthem in that it's rejecting what the counterculturalists saw as a culture of individualism and selfishness and crass materialism which post-war consumer culture had promoted. On the other hand, it's, it's not countercultural at all. All You Need Is Love was actually recorded, written and rec- for a programme called uh, One World, uh, in, which was broadcast on the BB, by the BBC in July 1967. And One, One World was the first ever satellite link-up broadcast. So it was actually a, a programme broadcast by the BBC, but also in uh, you know dozens of other countries around the world, watched by tens of millions of people around the world. It was a celebration. I mean, really, it was a way of showing off the technology of, of satellite television for the first time ever. But it was also, it was being promoted and organised by primarily by the BBC, by the British National Established Broadcasting Institution. So there's this sense in which in 1967, which in some ways, in, in terms of broader British political history, is the high point of British post-war social democracy. You know, Harold Wilson had won, had won a stonking uh, majority in the, in the election the previous year, uh, the, one of only three Labour leaders ever to do that. On some measures, real wages, like the amount or the share of the economy that goes to people in wages, uh, was at an absolute high point at that point in history. Um, it's always a difficult thing to measure accurately, but some economic historians would say 66, 67 is like literally the best time in history to be someone who has to work for a living in terms of what kind of a share of the gross national product you're going to get and your access to public services and your access to welfare. And it's true now, you know, people who were young then or, you know, have been in or very few people would deny the sort of luckiest generation in history. So in some ways, it's not at all countercultural. It was in some ways it was absolutely at the sort of heart of the culture. But wouldn't you say, I mean, just one one thought that comes out of that, Jim, is that uh, the idea that counterculture was, was also looking to transform the world. It was looking to change the world. So it wasn't just about it was if there was an opportunity to kind of get one's message out there in a popular form, even through established media channels, isn't that something that a counterculturalist would have been open to? Yeah, definitely. But I also th- I think there's a big shift actually from the moment of all you need is love, the summer of love, through to 1968, which is the moment of the counterculture and the moment of the great international wave of student protests, uh, the protest against Stalinism in the Eastern Bloc, against even against one party rule in Mexico. There's a huge wave of protests. There's a big shift. I mean, the White Album, which the Beatles like release in 1968, and they're recording it over, I think, 67 to 68, has this song on it called revolution which is basically the sort the beatles sort of you know basically mocking people the kind of the the militant revolutionaries who they see increasingly taking to the street and promoting a sort of antagonistic relationship between the public and the state and the government and, and appealing to a sort of generally moderate sense that everybody's progressive and we don't need any kind of revolutionary action. But of course, notoriously, like by the time they'd released the record, like John Lennon himself had been co- become converted to the cause of workers' revolution. So there's that chorus. There's a bit. They say um, uh, there's a bit in the line. There's a line in the song where they say, "You can count me out." And then, but when they sung it live, uh, Lennon would sing "In" instead. <laughs> so. Um, and so and there was this this shift was going on so and and, but i think the nature of the shift really i mean all you need is love is really it it seems like such a banal thing and in some ways it's again another reason it's sort of not countercultural is because 
you can just interpret it as a sort of classical Christian message. It's a, it, in some ways, it's a message which has been explicitly central to, to Western culture and much of sort of mainstream global culture for a very long time. But what happens between sixty-seven and sixty-eight is a whole, to some in some ways, a whole sort of generation of people come to the conclusion that although they might want to live in a society which is based on relations of love, and they might want to, there are all these powerful forces who are very determined to make sure that. That isn't really possible. That you you're gonna that the only society you're gonna live in is one based on militarism, war, capitalist greed, individual materialism. And by six, so by by sort of the middle of 1968, all you need is love. Has stopped seeming like a sort of relatively banal celebration of liberal progress, and instead has become a sort of potentially revolutionary anthem. But it's only revolutionary to the extent that, as you say, you recognise that well, you can't really have a society based on love unless you can escape from capitalist alienation, militarism, etc. Yeah. I mean, we're going to come back to this theme again and again uh, during this podcast, but I think it's worth kind of drawing out uh, one of the second themes, indeed, that we're going to find ourselves returning to again and again, simply because it's kind of become such an important reference point for us. And it's kind of such a, you know, deep and rich history. And that, of course, ties into the thematic of Love is a Message. And that is, of course, David Mancuso in The Loft. I don't think too much emphasis can really be put on the connection between David and counterculture. This is absolutely how David understood himself to be in the world. He was effectively born an outsider. He grew up in a a kid's home in upstate uh, New York. He was part of a community that depended on the goodwill and kindness of others. He was used to forming uh, a sense of friendships and a sense of family that was extended uh, and continually shifting, but also absolutely central to one to one sense of identity. And it was about people uh, in disadvantage uh, who found themselves in a di- uh, young kids, really, who found themselves in a disadvantaged situation, uh, finding the resourcefulness to uh, form a, a community and, and find some sense of happiness in life. By the time David moved to New York City uh, from upstate New York, um, he, he was heavily committed to the ideas that start were forming, uh, were fermenting around civil rights, around gay liberation, around the feminist movement, of course, the anti-war movement. And, you know, he also got interested in, in experimenting with LSD while it was still legal, as he liked to emphasise to me. It's partly because of this that I think David is, is so a compelling figure. He understood the world in political terms, and he also understood the importance of changing the world. He was absolutely dedicated to the idea of kind of furthering equality. It was very much the idea that the party could become a manifestation of these energies. It had become dangerous to go out on the street. Anti-war protesters uh, were getting were getting killed by the state uh, for protesting against the kind of Vietnam War, and there was this idea that the, the dance floor space and intimate private space could also function as a, as a safe space, as a refuge, where these energies, these expressions could be cultivated, could be nurtured, could be given the freedom to explore themselves very much within the framework, within cult- counterculture, but also in a, in a space that was kind of wasn't facing some of the threat, the very physical threats that were taking place outside of these intimate environments. Music, dance, sound systems, counterculture. This is Love is the Message. With Uber Mana, Hector Hippolyte, 
Yeah, so this is uh, Exuma, the Obeya Man, uh, which was released in 1970. It was recorded by a guy called Tony McKay, um, who was uh, born in the Bahamas in the early 1940s. Uh, he, I think it was the age of 17, he went to study architecture in New York City, ran out of money and became quite, uh, really this kind of really interesting figure on the Greenwich Village scene, participating in folk music, but also bringing a kind of island sensibility to a lot of his recordings. This was just kind of a track that worked perfectly at the loft. It's rough, it's raw, it's organic, it's got a sense of, of communalism. If we think about the loft in this particular period, David lives in NoHo, the north of Houston, which is kind of part of downtown in this kind of abandoned loft. The streets are cobbled, there's no street lighting, there are no shops, uh, the party is entirely clandestine. Most people are not going to have necessarily heard a lot of the music that David was going to be playing because, you know, there's just kind of limited circulation. So this just kind of captures the sort of sound that David was kind of founding himself drawn to. Uh, this particular, you know, in the in the very first parties he was putting on in, in his home. And the Obeya Man is, I mean, and people won't know what an Obeya Man is. An Obeya Man is like a, J- a Jamaican sort of shaman. Yeah, exactly. But I think Obeya is, is a system of spiritual healing and justice-making practices. It's kind of rooted in West, uh, West African slaves moving to the West Indies. Yeah. And, and I know Bayer Mans were, were credited with leading revolutions and up as well. Were, were sometimes credited with inciting rebellion. Yeah, it? yeah. So it's a really exemplary of sort of, this is a term I'm going to keep using a lot of, of what I would call a sort of Afro psychedelic aesthetic. It's sort of, it's obviously got affinities with sort of psychedelic ideas of, you know, visionary states and radicals transfer personal and social transformation, but it, it's not locating that in a sort of largely white, so Californian culture, it's locating it in a tradition of the African diaspora. So it's really powerful. And it's sort of percussive quality, I think, is also really important. The, this is the moment, sort of under the influence of people like James Brown, but it's happening more broadly. This is the moment where like, really heavily percussive dance music is just starting to become a phenomenon, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it, it's yeah. The the percussion gets to be foregrounded. Uh, there's elements of this taking place in funk music, in particular, which is beginning to break through in the very late '60s. What starts to happen very quickly is that David and other people who are kind of working as DJs, David, as, as we know, didn't kind of particularly think of himself as a DJ, but will no doubt return to that theme a bit later on. But they were interested in finding music that would make the, you know, encourage dancers to dance. And, you know, they were continually turning to more percussive tracks. And this, of course, is one of them. And it's the, the fact that they would turn to these percussive tracks, play them, and then the dancers would go out and try and often buy these records that led musicians and independent record labels to start figuring or releasing, recording and releasing more and more tracks that emphasise the percussion. So that's really important, I think. But the other thing I really that's really interesting about this track, I think, is the way that it, there's a kind of, it brings in a sort of a folkish driving, but still folkish guitar element to it. 
it sounds like a fusion record. Uh, it doesn't just sound like it's uh, a record that was recorded uh, on the Bahamas. It's also very much got a kind of a, a Greenwich Village spirit kind of running through elements of it. And this was what how New York City kind of was functioning. And of course, is another one of the other reasons why we want to keep coming back to the loft is because of the loft's location in New York City uh, and the loft's kind of, in a way, centrality, if you like, to the way that New York City evolves during the 1970s. And it's about bringing all of these kind of diverse elements together. Uh, this is what these parties enable to do. Uh, previously, uh, many of these recordings would have just had discrete existences. And it's, also, it's always worth remembering that radio in the United States is much more segregated than radio tends to be in Europe and the United Kingdom as well. So it was in these spaces that the, the different sounds could start to converge. And, you know, I, I really like the way that this, this particular record brings together uh, not just the kind of the heavily percussive, shape, ma- magical, shamanistic element, but also sort of combines it with kind of some of the core core elements of countercultural folk music. Enjoying the show? If you can, please consider supporting what we do via our Patreon so we can stay free. You can find the link in the show notes. Thanks, and back to the show. You and I sort of historically have come at this issue from from two different angles so you were coming at it mostly from the point of view i mean initially you were researching the history of rave and then the prehistory of dance culture and you sort of landed at the loft and i was sort of came at it from a slightly different angle in a way which was historically i've been very sort of committed to the political legacy of the new left been interested in things like the long-term legacy of psychedelic culture i've been i've engaged in debates and polemics with people also coming from sort of left perspective, but people who would see the sort of cultural movements of the late 60s and early 70s as having somehow failed or in fact just having paved the way for an advanced form of capitalism. And, you know, I've sort of polemicized against those people and said, no, some of those movements may have been defeated or they may have been partially captured, but there was a really important kind of radical, innovative energy to them. And that that was my where I'm coming from. I'm really coming from the perspective of, of the new left. I was also, I was really into rave and like I'd written a book about, as you said, I'd I'd written a book about rave at the end of the 90s with you and Pearson, although the book concluded in, in, in a very pessimistic way, actually, about what we felt that the rave had had political potential, but it had been effectively neutralized by the state and capitalists. But from coming from all that perspective, when I encountered the loft and I got to know David, it, it was really sort of um, really striking that in some ways the loft, you know, this this regular social dance party, but it's very specific aesthetic and it's very specific rituals and modes of self-organization really seem to somehow exemplify and manifest all of those sort of features. It seemed to be the sort of perfect expression of that countercultural politics. One of the things that was so striking to me about it, and this is something we'll keep going on and on about as well, is that, you know, I'd grown up on a particular received history of sort of the countercultural legacy and psychedelic culture, which didn't really have much to say about New York. Like I'd been sort of, I'd sort of grown up understanding the the counterculture as something that happened in West London and, and the Bay Area of California. And it was a phenomenon which was quite white. 
and it was a follow on and if there was any sort of relationship between black culture and black politics and the and the counterculture it was presented in terms of the sort of tension between like hippies and panthers in Calif- and black panthers in california and the fact that actually what was going on in, on the East Coast at the same time was both musically and sort of politically and socioculturally, it was in some ways a much more interesting set of kind of syntheses between black culture and politics, the emerging culture and politics of gay liberation uh, and all these other things that we, that we keep referring to. I mean, to me, that was really, really striking. And it, but, but it was also striking that you could just hear this on the dance floor. You know, you could hear it on the dance floor at the loft. You could somehow you could feel all all of this radical energy just absolutely informing the really mundane practice of how David, you know, presented records to a crowd. So to me, it really, it has this kind of, the loft is really important because it has this exemplary quality. I mean, our roots may not have been so different. I'm not accusing you of being apolitical. Yes, you were. <laughs> <laughs> That's entirely how you think of me. Some, like, some party boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, always with, a, always with a glass of water in my hand. <laughs> I mean, if I re- recap my journey a little bit into it, I was kind of, I was very, you know, university, I was completely into politics and it's kind of, and, uh, you know, left-wing politics, but I wasn't really, I also got kind of, I found the factionalism of left-wing politics to be quite tiring at certain points. And uh, my energies when I graduated ended up being directed in sort of political journalism, and it was the it was the kind of high point of of, of well we we're kind of in the middle of another one now sadly, but back then it seemed like it was also the high point of, of conservative Tory Britain, this radical shift to the right, which had been embodied by Margaret Thatcher, and then somehow or other this kind of grey anonymous figure of John Major, who seemed to have no sort of qualities to lead the country at all, came to power when Margaret Thatcher was was you know finally dethroned and kind of somehow or other stayed in power for another five years. In this period, I was kind of involved in political journalism, just becoming increasingly frustrated, increasingly bored. It became very difficult to envision the circumstances in which you could get rid of a conservative government. And it was around this point in the early 1990s that I just kind of, it wasn't like a a straightforward kind of decision to one day change the way I was kind of behaving in the world. But I just became more interested in in culture and the politics of culture. It seemed to me, I kind of maybe I was late to understand that you could clearly affect huge influence and change outside of traditional political fields. So I got very interested in, in the culture of politics and I was getting, I was really immersing myself in dance music culture, house music. And it was that sense of culture having an answer to something around social change that was core to me, you know, deciding to leave my job at BBC Newsnight and go and study for a doctorate in, at the time, was going to be English literature in New York City in order to be closer to DJ culture. So, yeah, well, I mean, just briefly to say how I met David, is I was living in New York City. I had started a writer book about house music history. And uh, Stephen Prescott, a friend who was co-running Dance Track, suggested that I meet this guy, David Mankin who was around somewhere towards the beginning of the culture. Uh, I wasn't too interested in going back um, to the early 1970s. I was kind of, my, as I sometimes say, uh, I was, I was, my ears had become electronic. I was so heavily into house music. But I was also kind of open to exploring different avenues and seeing where they led. So, so I'd agreed to meet David. 
before I met David, I did have a few people tell me not to bother that he was kind of irrelevant to dance music history. He was out of sync, out of time, uh, didn't particularly like electronic music, didn't DJ, had a sound system that was completely different to club sound systems and that, you know, I should really be getting on with other inter- interviews. But I went ahead and, and met David and we sat down and we, uh, for, in this East Village Italian restaurant, very basic. David was clearly felt very at home there. It was his, his suggestion we eat there. And I remember that he was kind of like this kind of a cross between a biblical prophet and a, and a teddy bear. He looked a bit like Jesus Christ. Uh, he was very kind of quite shaggy. Uh, you know, it's very, you know, had a big body. A bit heavier than Jesus. <laughs> yeah, well, but not when he was not when he was Jesus' age. Yeah, but but let's just say, I mean, David had an appetite for life. I think it's fair to say, and he, you That's know, and, uh, and that included that in, that, in, that included all sorts of things. Yeah, he was com- completely the, this energy of his kind of passion for this culture and that this history and what and what he was clearly telling me was this history that hadn't really been written uh, he and his friends felt that they had been written out left out of history effectively their com- contribution was com- completely un- uncharted and unhistoricized at best david might get a kind of you know a little reference in kind of a, a book about kind of rave culture or, or house music but the main thing was I was compelled. Uh, by the time I got home that night, uh, it took me about an hour to get back from East Village to, to this apartment I was living in near Columbia University. There were like, I think it was three or four messages on the answer machine. And they were all from friends of David, uh, who David had contacted to say that um, what the two of us had met and that I was writing this book and that he thought it would be a, a good idea uh, for me to talk with these people. So they'd called, they'd called me and, and left a message and left their, their numbers. And it was just a kind of classic moment, a typical moment of how David's kind of, his, his passion and his enthusiasm, even though he was in this very down and out moment in his life, still kind of was always coming through. He was always looking to ways of, to connect, to communicate, to try and get something going, to, tr- you know, to somehow take things forward. What do you remember about first meeting David? Well, the way I, I always tell the story of meeting David is I didn't I didn't really know what to expect. I'd gone with you to a party that he DJ'd that had been organised by New Phonic a couple of years previously and been really blown away by it. And then we had decided that you and me and Colleen and a group of other people would organise another party with David and he would come over and DJ at it. And he was going to stay at my house because nobody else wanted him staying at their house. Like you, all, you all had little kids and he smoked and I didn't have room for him and I had a big shared house. So I didn't really know what to expect and he didn't really know what to expect. And I think he was expecting a kind of typical, sort of apolitical, culturally relatively uninteresting, to be honest, sort of London fanboy, which is his the main kind of person he'd interfaced with so far on this side of the pond. And he didn't. He met a kind of sort of political activist, you know, sort of young academic with sort of philosophy books all around the house. And I didn't know what I was going to meet, but we he was he started talking to me about the local kind of community organising he'd been involved in around some sort of housing campaign. Really and so we were just sort of talking about politics like immediately. And and it just, you know, it became apparent that we had an awful lot in common. And it was, you know, it was, I mean, he was very impressive. I agree, very compelling. And he was, you know, someone who kind of knew about a whole set, set of things I'd always been interested in. And that hadn't he, and he was the only person I'd met who sort of could bring all those things together in, in quite that way. I remember going to that 
Newphonic party. It was for the David Mancuso presents uh, the Loft, a Newphonic album, which was part of David's reintegration within, for want of a better term, the dance music community. He sort of it was a way for him to make a statement about what the Loft was and the kind of music that could be heard there. And it was music that was quite different to the music that you might hear if you were definitely different to the music you'd hear if you went out to just about any party space in London or dare I say Europe or dare I say even north america as well so there was something very different going on on that album and then the i remember the party was kind of had this big influence on you know on you jeremy and other people who hadn't kind of heard david work as musical host uh, in any other situation and when when it became clear that newphonic weren't kind of going to put on another party you had suggested to me and david came to me around the same time and also to colleen that we do this this party uh, in london and we'll return to the how we kind of went about doing that because it turned out to be quite a story but the first party was held in june 2003 where the place called the light which was in the uh, southern part of shoreditch uh, has now been pretty much entirely colonized by the the city of london and the financial district and one of the records that david played at that party in June 2003 was this record by Blaze, Brand New Day. And there was something in this record that was, uh, spoke about David and the loft. I mean, it's certainly true that David struggled to find new music that he, he wanted to play, but he, he did like this track. I think he particularly liked the fact that as a sample of a, a gurgling baby at one point, David liked many childlike things that got to be associated with the dance floor. He loved the idea of the freedom and the, the joy that could be expressed by kids. Uh, and just the title of the track itself has a sort of spiritual promise of a better future, brand new day. David's embrace of the childlike is always really interesting. It's a fairly persistent theme in that sort of psychedelic history. It comes up in rave culture, but he's all, it was, it's all, it, there was always something very charming about it. When I first went to the loft in New York, I, I was incredibly struck by the fact that there were children there and there were people who had been children in the 70s and 80s there bringing their own children, really sort of extraordinary. Well, that for me, that that first encounter with the loft in New York is this incredibly multi generational, multicultural, utopian space. It really exemplified something, which was David's understanding of the dance floor as a utopian space, as a space in which you create a kind of, yeah, as far as possible, a sort of perfect set of social relations. And that's something that historically is sort of emerging at the end of the. 60s in the early 70s what's emerging is this idea of the dance floor not as as a space in which you know people are dancing and people are using their bodies and people are engaging with music arguably for reasons which are similar to what people how people have used dancing and music for thousands of years but quite different to how people were using it say for the previous few hundred years so you know, it wasn't so much about the dance floor as a space at which you know, heterosexual couples would court each other it was more about the dance floor as a space at which a community would sort of come together and experience itself as a community but also individual bodies on the dance floor like singular bodies on the dance floor would be able to express themselves with a certain degree of freedom 
And I guess what's really central to the emergence of that, that idea of the dance floor, which you see in other spaces as well, you see it with the emergence of things like Northern Seoul in the, in the, in the UK a, a little bit later. What's really central is the development of funk and James Brown's practice of funk as this heavily percussive, this uniquely dance-oriented, uniquely body-oriented music, which is all about the presence of the beat in the moment. And obviously, Sex Machine, which is one of the records that David plays at the very first Loft Party in 1970, is a classic sort of exemplification of that funk technique. This is a re recorded uh, on what was supposed to be a live album. Uh, in fact, the first half of the, li the live, it's a double album, and the first record within that double album was actually largely recorded within the studio, as it happens. But there was added uh, reverb and overdubbed applause that gave it the feeling of being live. I think this kind of plays into one of the aesthetic sensibilities that would also drive the loft. I mean, David wanted to play music that was organic, that was earthy, that felt human and felt it felt immediate. But he also wanted kind of long records in which people could lose themselves. I mean, this is obviously pre the 12-inch. It's pre really the introduction of, of more sophisticated mixing technology. Francis Grasso, the Sanctuary, started to use a rudimentary mixer around the same time. And David would kind of build himself one a little a little while later. But this was really a pre-mixing culture. And it was in the long records that you could really kind of lose yourself. So I think there's something going on here with David in which he's testing the boundaries, like setting up the parameters, exploring the outer limits of what happens when you take the dance floor, you turn it into, as you say, a space of openness, of possibility, of exploration, of transformation, where there are no clear-cut limits being set. For example, in the discotheques during the 1960s, you could only get into these venues if you were with a partner of the opposite sex on many occasions. You certainly couldn't go in as, say, a queer couple, or you couldn't have two men on the dance floor dancing with each other. David was all about getting rid of those prohibitions. He was into using this kind of, in a sense, this neutral space of the floor as a space where the rules were taken away and people were allowed to kind of enter it and redefine the set of rules. But it was then indeed the grand experiment was what happens when you start to bring kind of a different form of music into this setting and you let the music take you somewhere you let it drive the space because previously djs had been playing a very different form of music mainly they were playing rock and roll music uh, they were playing exclusively singles and the djs were also paid effectively to do what was being called work the bar uh, the venues would make their money from the bar uh, and the owners would ask the DJs to make sure that kind of every five, six, seven records, they would play a record that would kill the dance floor. Uh, so they would build up to a quick crescendo and then they would put on a slow record, at which point the dancers would go to the bar, buy a drink, and guys would ask a, a woman to, if they wanted to have a slow dance. This was the dynamic. So the records were short, the, the build-ups were short, and then you kind of had your pause and went to the bar. There was no sense of this kind of getting lost in the music. Some of this was going on in counterculture, but generally it was going on to rock music. David wanted to explore what happened if you had longer dance records, and in particular raw, energetic, kind of percussive, funk, African, chanted records that would kind of drive this space. So we get this grand experiment, really, in kind of the dance floor meeting new forms of kind of danceable music. Yeah, that's really interesting. 
know, there was a whole sort of different manipulation of hormones or in a way, wasn't there? There was a shift from getting people's adrenaline up and getting them thirsty and horny and so shifting to this sort of trance-like desire to intensify people's endorphin and dopamine. You're listening to Love is the Message with Tim Lawrence and Jeremy Gilbert. David first heard uh, Love is the Message just when it was released at the end of 1973. He was at Le Jardin and Nicky Ciano, the DJ and co-owner of the gallery, was also there that night. David always said that the gallery was the party that came closest to resembling the loft. And uh, up until that point, DJs had been playing the kind of this record TSOP that was recorded for the programme Soul Train. And it was a kind of, it was this kind of big record that reached number one on the charts and it was kind of associated with the tv program but it was love is the message that turned out to be less poppy and kind of more have a more emotional lush jazz oriented fluidity that appealed to david and love is the message became this along with eddie kendrick's girl you need to change your mind the most important and, and james brown get it up to at least the most important records for david at that particular moment but then love is the message just became also this record that I think it just articulated this entire sensibility and, if you like, philosophy of David. You know, he'd used the slogan, love is the day, love saves the day, uh, on his, his first party invite. Another catchphrase or slogan was music is love. And, and love is the message also was just this kind of, you know, it was just summed up the entire point of the loft in some, in some respects. When I first heard it with David playing in New York, playing in London, and then, and then I heard him playing in New York, you know, it's this big hands-in-the-air anthem you know, I'd, I'd always had a sort of weakness for house and trance or big anthems, as long as they had some element of rhythmic interest as well. You know? But it, the thing that really struck me was that it's sort of, it's a record that somehow fulfills the criteria of those big dance floor anthems, but it does it better than almost any record I can think of, like from after, you know, any time after the 70s. And it's that combination of, you know, that sort of mantra lyric and the strings and the, you know, with the kind of jazzy elements, is the way it brings all these things together is really sort of remarkable. And it did, you know, I think it is a record that really, um, it's very easy for people to get into on a dance floor. There's also something that's really interesting about that. Yeah, it's interesting. I think sometimes a record can get a different response in New York City than it does in London. I mean, in London, the, we don't, we don't generally don't have this long tradition of black social dance and jazz dance. It, it's been less integrated in London than say in, in somewhere in New York City. I think there's definitely a kind of jazz sensibility to love as a message, the fanfare horns and these breaks that kind of punctuate the record. So it can make it quite a difficult record to dance to for people who are used to something which is kind of four on the floor and electronic. Uh, if we're thinking back to 2003, when this all started to happen in London, the immediate preceding history was indeed electronic dance music. We had entered into the era of house music all night long. So to get something which just didn't maintain that straightforward driving, pulsating flow was kind of surprising for some people. But then you could go to New York City and this was a familiar language. It was about expressivity. It was about footwork. It was about moving your arms. 
and it was about a sense of kind of say openness there's something about that whole record that is like asking you to kind of interact with the people around you to open it's it's a very open record Uh, it's a very it's very fluid it's very textured Uh, it carries the promise of the future of dance music it's this kind of moment where there's a sense of a four on the floor groove that you could stay with that all night you take those kind of you know those four by four bars or whatever it is that becomes a, a template of house music but then there's all this instrumentation and complexity and fluidity on top that house music generally didn't kind of have it didn't have all these live musicians feeding into all these ideas but it's but it's also it's a record that could only have come out of the 1970s and i think this show is not going to be only about the 70s, but it is. But at least in Italy, we're going to talk a lot about the 70s. I think it's worth thinking about why the 70s is so interesting from the point of view of anybody interested in music and its relationship to cultural change, political change, social change. There's hardly any form of popular music today which can't be traced absolutely directly to some innovation from the 70s. Whether that innovation is uh, the birth of electronic music with Kraftwerk, whether it's funk and James Brown, whether it's the birth of hip-hop, punk and the sort of alternative rock which has flowed from punk, dance music coming from disco, whether it's kinds of music influenced by dub and reggae. And DJ, and DJ culture as we know it, I would say. Um, yeah, that's, and, and that becomes the, one of the organising things that enables a lot of these musics to happen. Or the disco happens through, kind of, is born through DJ culture. There's this new form of musicianship that comes through in the 1970s that kind of drives a lot of these sounds, I'd say. Yeah, definitely. And, well, we're going to spend a lot of time. I don't think we're going to get into it now. Like, why? Well, why the 70s? Because part, partly the entire uh, podcast is probably going to spend years answering that question, why the 70s, why all that music comes in the 70s. But one factor that's really important is that the 70s is also a huge period of, of social, cultural, political upheaval. As we've mentioned already, it's the period of the most radical period of the Black Power movement. It's the most, it's the period when gay liberation and women's liberation really get going. It's the period of struggle between the emerging new right and its various opponents. And it's a period, of course, which right-wing history, like to look back on and just see as a period of decadence and chaos and sort of destruction but economic failure yeah as well. econo- exactly that, that, that we had to be rescued from by thatcher and reagan and simon Le Bon. But, like, but, um, but the 70s, but you know, I've never heard of Simon Le Bon compared to Thatcher and Reagan. <laughs> haven't you? You haven't? No. <laughs> you should have been. I mean, there's one, one of the things that I personally I was kind of experiencing when I started to write uh, Love Saves Today and think about the 70s was that this was a period that in kind of popular culture had been rubbished and ridiculed and rejected as a failed decade. It's partly about supposed economic failure. The 70s was the first decade since the Second World War that had not one but two recessions. Um, It was a period in which um, cities appeared to go into a spiral of decay. In 1975, New York City uh, officially went bankrupt uh, and needed to go to the central government in order to kind of get some bailout money. And indeed, as as you've said, this was kind of interpreted by Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher as a failed decade. Sorry, I should also just say there was a sense that disco itself was his failure. We haven't really talked about that. By the end of the 70s, everyone seemed to agree that disco sucked. 
one of the twists of this is that certainly someone like David Mancuso, but other people I interviewed for Love Saves Today, they would also say that, yeah, by the 19, at the end of the 1970s, disco did suck. It didn't always suck at all. There was, a, there was amazing disco music. <laughs> but during 1978, after the success of Saturday Night Fever, which had come out at the end of, uh, in November 1977 and become this runaway success, this 1978 was the the year in which major record companies, but also independent record companies, started to release disco music that was kind of formulaic. So coming back to the 70s, it was easy to assume that disco also represented parts of this wider failure. And many commentators would associate the failure of the United States economy and society in this period with disco. There was this idea that society was becoming too consumerist, too narcissistic, too hedonistic. And these were associated with... It was a sign of exactly, Exactly. It? it was associated with the exactly. decadence. I think now, if we go back to this period, what we sort of, what I'd say, I'd see, I'd see it not as this kind of failure, but as this attempt to articulate many of the kind of forces uh, and energies and commitments that, that sort of started to come to the surface, let's say, to, to the foreground, if you like, during counterculture. The 70s wasn't just about this, this precursor to this lurch into the 1980s. It was actually an attempt to take the post-war era and to radicalize them, to say, yeah, we want we want elements of, of the equality that comes with social democracy, but we want this to be shared by queers and by people of color and by women. And we want it to be more flexible and for people's lives to be more pleasurable. And that there was no failure in this. It was actually a transitional moment. And it just turned out, as we'll go on to explore, it became this this period, this decade that got co-opted by neoliberal capitalism. The more progressive dynamic energies were incorporated by them whilst the egalitarian social democratic component was rejected as something that was kind of preventing you know society from functioning properly but we could go back to the 1970s as we sort of do and we say this was actually a period where there was a sense of communities taking root of cultural expression and of a new form of society that could could take root it just never had a chance to do that uh, and so a great record for you know one of the one of the many fantastic kind of musical phenomena of that period especially this fantastic period of innovation in the early 70s is all of these groups coming out of germany people like ashra temple um cluster people like this and probably most famously can and can are this incredibly innovative group combining improvised music with tape editing and experiments with very you know sort of funk influence driving percussion and this from 1973 this is one of their classic tracks the appropriately titled Future Days. Yeah, so in the coming, in the next episode, we're going to be looking at counterculture. Um, and then we've got a few more introductory episodes lined up whereby we're just going to sort of dig deeper into these themes that are going to kind of span the entire series. So we're going to be looking more at the loft, more about when we met David and started to put on parties, more at this emergence of this dance floor sound system kind of interaction that informs so much of what we're interested in, uh, more into the historical epochs and why the 1970s uh, is such an interesting decade and how it feeds into decades that follow it more into love as a line of inquiry 
Um, so we hope that you'll kind of listen to those, get into the conversation and also contribute to the conversation. So please join us for that. If you like the show, if you like the look of where we're going, please give us five stars on the podcast store. Please tell your friends. Consider becoming a patron because we haven't got much money and our producer, Matt, our fantastic producer, is a young, precarious worker who needs his rent paid. So A musician. A musician as well. Oh, 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 o